Hi, everyone. I'm speaking right now with Professor Pasquale Estrepo, who is an assistant professor at Boston University, whose research focuses on the impact of technology on inequality, as well as labor markets and economic growth. Hi, Pasquale. How are you? Hi, Julian. How are you? Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is how you got into automation and inequality. And I saw that in your earlier work, you tended to focus on the illicit economy. And from what I could tell within that, the illicit economy in Colombia. And I wanted to know how you shifted from that towards automation and inequality. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that the the story there is involves a little bit of path dependence. So I'm from Colombia. You know, and when I was doing my undergrad, I started doing my undergrad in mathematics, but then I got interested in economics. And the key topics in the public discussion in Colombia was always about violence, always about state capacity, always about corruption, political economy. And at the center of all of that, you always have like this big illegal market that Mm. was like reinforcing, if not causing many of these things. So like as a Colombian, it's natural to be interested in that because it's a topic that is kind of like very close to our hearts our history and like our future and that's why i started doing research on that topic then when i moved to the u.s to start my phd like you know like kind of like the focus shifted a little bit i guess that like you know like doing a phd is a great opportunity to start seeing like the world from a more global perspective perhaps and so like i became more interested in problems that were perhaps not as important for colombia i mean colombia Mm. i wouldn't say right now that automation it's a big concern there there's a lot Mm. of inequality but for very different reasons Uh, and so i Mm. became interested in these topics that i saw were very relevant for the developed world Mm. and so like you know like i think that that it's kind of nice that that you get to do research on topics that that you hear people talking about, right? So like you open a newspaper, you read The Economist, and they're always talking about, you know, automation, inequality, technology, and so on. Back mm. when I was in Colombia, it was the case with illegal markets. So like, I guess that I'm just trying to follow that trail, mm. of, you know, like interesting stuff. So the shift towards a more global topic with far-reaching implications. So do you remember, was there a specific thing that you read that made you interested? Do you remember the moment when you thought that this is something you wanted to focus on? Yeah, I don't think that it was anything specific. I just think that it was like accumulation of stuff. And, you know, when I was starting my PhD, there was all of the fuss about like artificial intelligence and about what it was going to be. And I was like listening to podcasts by, I don't know, like Sam Harris and other people or like the book by you, Noah Harari. Yeah. And like, like I started reading all of these things and I was like, oh, this is super interesting. I wonder if you can like kind of like analyze this from an economics perspective. Right. And then right. like Daron, who was my advisor and Daron apparently was also super interested in this thing. So we started this collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and I think that this is one of the things that's so interesting about the topic, too, is that it is something that gets discussed in these journalistic s- spheres like The Economist or more central mainstream publications, but also in academia and also in a slightly more sensationalistic way by futurists and so on, because the name artificial intelligence is kind of, you know, some people think of Blade Runner, cyborgs walking down the streets. So I think cutting through that is very interesting, which is why one thing I did want to ask is where you stand on the question of automation. And I have, uh, I have four or five 
studies that you wrote that I just wanted to briefly mention in case some people aren't familiar with that. One is a piece that uh, you you co-authored called Demographics and Automation where, and you know, correct me if any of these takeaways are wrong, but you showed that robots tend to substitute for middle-aged workers in the paper Automation of New Tasks. You showed that there was a reinstatement effect Mm -hmm. of labor, these new digital labor-saving technologies in competing with robots, you showed that the overall impact of robot adoption on an industry tends to reduce the employment in that same industry, the number of jobs, at least in the short run. And in unpacking the skill bias, which I believe is the most recent paper, um, you showed that there is this powerful impact on inequality and that there is a reduction in real wages and that productivity increases might not even be that high relative to inequality, which I thought was a very interesting point. So to the extent that you can, where do you stand on automation and AI? Perfect. So let me try to to reframe this question a little bit. So like one of the the questions that you sent me earlier on, and feel free to tell me like if if you're going to discuss it later on or whether this is a good moment to discuss it because Mm. you asked what's wrong with public discourse on our, about automation right that was my next one so we could we could do that now yeah perfect so like i guess that like what would be useful for me is to tell you like how i see public discourse and where i see myself into that public discourse and why i think that some of the perspectives that that one and i have brought are kind of like different from mm. like the the main views that you will find out, out there right because like you see that you're asking me like where do i stand on automation and I guess that, like, you know, like, I think that that's part of what the problem with this topic is that people are, want to divide themselves into two groups. There's kind of like a false dichotomy. So, mm. like, either you believe in the robocalypse, you know, like robots are going to come and are going to take over all of jobs. Right. Or you are a firm believer that this has happened before and we already seen this and, like, you know, like technology is great and nothing is going to happen. And I think that the reality is, like, in the middle. Like, you know, like on mm-hmm. that, technology is the only thing that has allowed us to achieve our standards of living. But I also think that there's no denying that technology sometimes achieves that at the expense of some groups of society. And I think that that's, mm. that's where I stand. Technology is a great force. Technology allows us to live better lives. But some technologies, not every technology, Technologies are also different, right? So, like, I wouldn't say that automation is the same thing as inventing new products, right? Mm. Those two things do different things. Some technologies, like automation in particular, have this peculiar feature that the way that they generate productivity, that the way that they generate additional capacity to produce is by substituting very specific types of human labor. Mm. And those workers that get replaced and that get substituted from their perspective, technology is a bad thing. Socially, technology is a good thing, but there are gonna be losers, net losers. And I mm. think that like my thing is just to kind of like put the spotlight on those losers and try to identify them and quantify those losses. Right. And that like, you know, like I the, the idea that technology generates winners and losers, I mean, kind of like people have that around, but but we tend to think like, oh, but the, the gains are so large that you know, like, this is okay, we just need to redistribute. But I don't know, right. like, right. the losses sometimes are, might be much more problematic than 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 what you can compensate with the gains. Right, certainly. Okay. I think even in the way that people phrase it, short-term losses, mm-hmm. disruption, 
some people might say that there's a slight underselling of what the human costs of that disruption are. But I wanted to ask about whether or not AI is fundamentally different in your view, because you said it's somewhere in the middle and it sounded like you were saying it's not going to be, you know, a, a temporary loss of some jobs, but, you know, it's fine because we'll create new ones or a complete joblessness apocalypse. It might yeah. be somewhere in the middle. And that seems to me very much in line with what past labor saving technologies did during the industrial revolution. You know, the classic example where you had a spike in automation mm-hmm. or, or, a spike, or a spike in labor saving devices that increased inequality in the short run. And we mm-hmm. can talk about the extent to which that was tar- tolerable, but in the long run, those jobs came back. So do you think that it is fundamentally different from how devices in the past performed or is it in line with that history? Perfect. So that's a great question. You know, like we talk a lot uh, about artificial intelligence, but we don't really know what it does, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So, so, right. So, like, I, I can talk about technologies that I know what they do. So, for instance, automation of manufacturing via industrial robotics or automation of white-collar jobs via software, right? And so let's start there, and then we'll speculate a little bit more about AI. So, like, I think that with industrial robotics and automation of white-collar jobs via software, the economic forces are very similar to what we saw in the past, let's say, with the mechanization of agriculture mm-hmm. or the mechanization of textile production in England during the Industrial Revolution, right? Like, you had very pretty much like artisanal techniques where like it took a bunch of people, kids and women to weave and knit like a particular mm-hmm. piece of clothing. Mm-hmm. And then you come up with these machines where like, you know, like you just need one person to kind of like operate the whole machinery. And like, you know, like essentially what you did is that you replaced all of that artisanal and labor intensive uh, technique that used to be uh, the main technique before, like with agriculture, you see the same thing, right? Before it was like people with rudimentary tools, such as like a site or whatever, right? Uh, the land, and then like you have a tractor, right? And the tractor, there's just like one person, and that person, like the only thing that he has to do is drive the tractor. Like nowadays, they don't even need to drive the tractor because like these tractors are becoming increasingly like self-driving tractors, and so you can see that. Essentially, we are moving to technologies that are more and more, more capital intensive and that rely less and less and less on human labor. And I think that the consequences to some extent are similar. So like many people say like, oh, no, we had a lot of uh, mechanization in history and we still have a bunch of jobs. So that's not bad. But when you look at the historical record, that argument is not exactly right, because like, for instance, England around the Industrial Revolution, there were about 60 years where wages were essentially stagnant. So yes, this technology create these technologies created more bounty. They created like higher incomes per capita, mm. but most of this income went to the hands of capital owners, people who owned right. those machinery, people who owned the land, and those gains didn't take, uh, trickle down to wages until after 60 years uh, of these developments. Right. So 60 years is a lot of time. During these years, we had a lot of unrest. We had right many, many social reforms to appease mm. some of the unrest that, that resulted from these. We had the Luddites, right, that was kind of like a response to all of these developments. Right. Um, so, you know, it was not a rosy, it was not an easy transition. 
cloud, of course, that puts us into a fantastic path where like, you know, like eventually people acquire skills. We came out with new industries, products, and so on to employ a bunch of people. But, but that was kind of like a choice, right? I mean, it's, there was, I mean, maybe that wouldn't happen. And so I guess that that's the next question, whether we're going to be able to come out with the jobs, the ideas, the sectors, the tasks for all of the people that we displace from manufacturing and all of the people that we are displacing from services. Uh, I mean, what are we going to employ all of these people, right? And, and perhaps what are the future is one where we're going to have fewer jobs. I mean. You really think that uh, there's a chance that the future could look like on aggregate, there's fewer fewer jobs that the economy requires. So yeah. in, essence, in essence, that the whole pr- the whole principle of efficiency gains, creating jobs in new industries, that that principle might break down. I mean, like, I think that that principle has worked in the past, but the fact that it has worked in the past is not guaranteed that it's going to keep working in the future. Mm. I think that at least theoretically, conceptually, I mean, it's possible. I mean, I'm not saying that it's going to happen, but it's possible that we mm. go to the future where the economy uses less labor. And yeah. so, yeah. you know, like only 20% of the population works, and that's kind of like enough to supply all of the labor that the economy needs. Now, the bad thing, I mean, like, maybe this is a great thing if all of us only work one day per week. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like, awesome. But the problem is that we might be going to a future where only 20% of us work the entire week. And that's very different because the implications for inequality are quite, dis- are quite different, right? Yeah. So, so I guess that that's kind of like the challenge. The challenge to me is not so much whether the level of employment that you need to produce something is going to go down. For sure, that's going to go down. I mean, we're right. going to produce much more with fewer workers. The question right. is going to provide those hours of human labor and who are the people in a position to benefit from that demand or labor that is going to be out there. Mm. So I wanna, I'd love to talk more about the social and political implications of what you just said. The, but first, I want to ask about a pandemic related question. So the Wall Street Journal just ran a headline where they said that essentially meat packers Mm -hmm. were all of a sudden beginning to automate more and more labor and that that automated technology was not necessarily doing as good a job as the humans were, but the coronavirus Mm -hmm. had essentially hastened that shift. And I believe there are other instances of that in manufacturing as well. So is that something, is this something that you view as uh, as bringing automation much faster. Totally. So like, like you know, like one of the papers that you mentioned earlier on was this paper on demographics. And in the paper, what we showed is that a lot of what you see in terms of industrial automation, that is automation by industrial robots and machinery in, in you know, car manufacturing plants, for example, is driven by the scarcity of work. So like, mm-hmm. you know, like this is technology that responds to incentives. So what are the most automated countries in the world? Japan, Germany, Italy, mm. countries whose population is aging very rapidly, where like young workers with the muscle to like weld a car, you know, are, are scarce. Yeah. And, and so is that scarcity of labor in some sense what has fueled a lot of this automation? And mm. you can think of the pandemic as doing something similar. It's generating a scarcity of labor because like, you know, like workers, on the one hand, they cannot go to work because of like either concerns or lockdown measures. Uh, but also there's also some safety measures that might make uh, some automation technologies more safe yeah. than, than human workers, right? So there's an element of that. On the other hand, like, you know, like this pandemic also kind of like gave me like another reflection that, that, you know, like many of us 
or many people kind of like thought that humans were already kind of like obsolete and like humans were no longer needed. And this pandemic kind of like made me revisit that view because it does suggest that like humans are still extremely important for the <laughs> yeah. important, right? So like you take out the human element and the economy like completely gets destroyed. And, and human so, contact too. Yeah, absolutely. So, so like, you know, it's not only about production, but so much of our economy is about, about humans interacting with other humans and, and human contact that it also kind of like gives me some pause and like, you know, like, yeah, maybe, sure, maybe we're going to automate a lot of jobs, but maybe there's like, you know, like the economy is increasingly becoming more intensive in these other kind of activities that by their nature, you know, they're just not automatable or like we don't want to automate it because like the the quality of the goods that we are consuming them, they're dependent on human interaction, right? Mm. And, and certainly I think there are instances, I, I mean, skeptics that I've talked to about AI have definitely brought up instances, they'll pull up, you know, a treasure trove of articles where mm. someone says, we can now automate kindergarten teachers. Exactly. And then we could do, you know, some polling on the number of moms and dads that would be happy with a robot teaching their, yeah. kind, or their kindergartners. Absolutely. Um, but so I, I, I did want to ask more about the uh, social and political side of this as well. And I don't mean to be flippant with this question, but I wanted to know why inequality is necessarily a bad thing. Great. I think that that's a great question. And I think that the answer is that it's not necessarily a bad thing, at least in my mind. Let me tell you the feature about current inequality that I think is absolutely a bad thing. I think that the problem with current inequality is not, I mean, you can have inequality for two reasons. You can have inequality because everyone's incomes are growing, but some incomes are growing much more rapidly than others, right? Maybe there are some political, philosophical, or ethical reasons to be opposed to that type of inequality, okay? Mm. But, but but there, I don't think that there's a very strong argument that, you know, like everyone should agree that that type of inequality is very bad because that type of inequality might reflect, you know, like, oh, maybe the people whose incomes are growing more is because they started a business, right? Like, you know, like Bezos, Jeff Bezos, like, like a billionaire, but like, you know, like I would say like, yeah, I, if, if you ask me, I think that, you know, like, well, maybe I'm overstating my case here, but like, yes, he deserves to be a millionaire because kind of like a billionaire because the product that he created delivers a lot of value, right? So I think that there's a chunk of inequality that that is good um, and, and that I'm not opposed at least in terms of like first principle. But I do think that the nature of contemporary inequality is very different from that story that, I'm, that I was telling. Contemporary mm. inequality is not just mm. about like some people who came up with great ideas and their incomes grow a lot and like you know like all of our incomes can grow just if we are if we happen to like you know like work hard and so on. But contemporary inequality, if I had to describe it, has this feature that we see groups of societies who of society who are worse off than before. So it's not just mm. that all incomes are growing; it is that some incomes are falling in real terms mm. and to me that's kind of like something that is just the biggest contemporaneous problem that we have people who are worse off than their parents than their previous generation mm. so if in the us you are 
a person who has high school or less than a high school degree, uh, who comes from a poor background, like actually your parents were better off than you in terms of labor market income. And, and that's kind of like the scary aspect of inequality, that it's mm. not even progress, but sometimes it means no progress at all for mm. some groups of society. Mm. And that's like the reason that makes me worry. And those groups, of course, I mean, that's going to have political implications, everything, but just like from a humanity perspective, I think that like, you know, like as a society, like we can afford, I mean, we should aspire or try to make everyone gain from technology, everyone gain from globalization. There shouldn't be anyone who is worse off than a person mm. like him or her 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, I mean, there is the data on, from Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez that tries to quantify how bad inequality is today. And from what I have seen, it shows that it's roughly where it was at in the early 20th century. And so when you think about automation in conjunction with the general financialization of the economy, the rise of private debt, the extension of credit in the economy, do you feel like now is a particularly vulnerable moment for a shock to inequality through digitally enabled automation? Yeah, absolutely. I think that like, you know, like I think that part of the problem is that there's no safety net network net in this in this country i mean the safety net is kind of like i mean we are seeing that with COVID, right there's people whose finances are are an incredible incredibly vulnerable position and mm -hmm. so imagine that like you know like you know like you're on your 30s you're on your 40s you have some debt you don't own a lot of assets and then they come out with this software that can do exactly what you were doing at, at, at your work right yeah are screwed there's nothing you can do and like yeah. you know like just the economies and the economy said like no because like you know people can retrain and like people can relocate and we're gonna take that person and make that a, a coder right or a software engineer that's not gonna happen that's kind of like a lost generation there and i think that 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 you know like we should care more about that potentially lost generation mm. and in terms of reducing inequality i actually a month ago i got to speak with historian Walter Scheidel on his thesis in The Great Leveler that inequality only gets reduced or leveled by mass military mobilization, yeah. civil war, plague, or government collapse. And what I was so striking about reading his book and talking with him was it seemed to, on some level, be in opposition to a lot of the language in economics that seems to frame inequality and shocks as almost cyclical in nature where there's a short run and a long run and it seemed like professor scheidel's point was essentially that actually there's been these exogenous forces in the form of essentially catastrophe that have reduced inequality and i'm wondering what your thoughts are on that yeah so like i think that for economists in general like i wouldn't say that inequality is just a cyclical phenomenon i mean if you read like like the labor economics literature there's a lot of literature kind of like emphasizing these trends mm. uh, and it's like long-run trends so like you know like over the long run what we are seeing is that someone that has a college degree is earning much more than someone who does not have a college degree and that just keeps mm. like expanding and expanding and expanding and decelerated a little bit in the 2010s and so on but you know, there are like these big trends. 
So like, you know, like I, I wouldn't say that it's, it's only about, about shocks. Uh, but I do think that, that economies emphasize much more the role of technology uh, than, than politics, right? I mean, there are some fields in economics that are emphasizing much more the role of politics. And I think that, that, that you know, like in these shocks that you're mentioning, like what needs to happen is kind of like a big shock so that it triggers kind of like political reform and so on. And, and, and that perhaps hasn't been so much included into the language of, of economists. Um, the other thing that I would like to say is that, you know, like, while I think that that thesis is kind of interesting, you also see a lot of variation across countries. So, like, you mm -hmm. know, like, when you look at the data, there are countries that, you know, like, technology is kind of, like, universal. I mean, I was telling you about, like, you know, like, the Germans were the ones who invented industrial automation, same as Japan. And they don't have as much inequality as we do I, I mm. mean, here in the U.S., right? So, I mm. think... That's also kind of like a choice. Like, I don't think that you need to have a war to reduce inequality. I mean, I just think that you <laughs> like good old taxes, but like, you know, like you need to, you know, have more progressive taxation. And I mean, right about inequality, that's the first thing that you should do. And it's very simple. I mean, simple, technically, <laughs> like politically might be difficult, but, but like the solution is. Right. And so uh, what do you think about proposals like a universal basic income or a progressive basic income or any variation of that negative income tax and so on? Yeah, I think that like anything that looks like a negative income tax, I think that would be greatly beneficial. Anything that looks like an earned income tax credit that is like subsidizing work mm. uh, for low wage workers would be very beneficial also because it kind of like helps convince firms not to automate those jobs. Right. Part of those jobs are subsidized. Anything like a universal basic income. I mean, I think it's, again, like I like the idea. I don't like the idea of a universal basic income, like essentially substituting the whole uh, safety net. Mm. I think that like, you know, like still having like a government that, that, you know, supplies insurance and that supplies other programs that are more targeted to whoever right. it's useful. But like, you know, like I think that the spirit of all of these things is the same. Like we need a better safety net, right? And and so, I mean, like if you implement it one way or the other, if if politically this is more appealing than this, I don't yeah. know. I'm, I'm right. fine. I, I'm, I just think that, yeah, we do need stronger safety net. Right. And so the last question I wanted to ask is looking to the future, mm -hmm. what are some open questions that you think would be really interesting to look at either on inequality alone or on automation and inequality and so on? And also, you know, if not questions, some areas of research that you think thus far have been untapped. Perfect. So let me start with the first one. I think that, you know, like one of the things that I find more puzzling about current technologies is that if you look at the labor market, you would conclude that there's a lot of disruption. You would conclude that, you know, like there's inequality, the prices of different skills are changing, mm -hmm. the nature of jobs is changing, the types of jobs that we are posting are changing, right. the skills that the labor market is valuing are changing. And so, like, you know, like from looking at that, you would think like, oh, technology is kind of like advancing at this amazing pace. But when you look at productivity, there's not a lot of productivity growth. Mm. Uh, and, you know, like this has this like lack of productivity growth has been used by many to 
argued that automation or that technology is not a concern. So like I saw that you did an interview of, of Paul Krugman at some point. Yeah, and, he brought it up. Yeah, and I think he made that point. And, and I think that that point is kind of like misguided because, you know, like I think that, you know, like one of the interesting things about automation technologies is that, and like you already mentioned that this is something that we emphasize a lot, is that you can have automation without big productivity gains. Mm. And let's just give you an example of why that is the case. Like, you know, like imagine that, that you know, like I'm a worker uh, working in a supermarket checkout machine, right? And then someone comes and invents like a self-service kiosk or whatever, mm. right? <laughs> so, you know, like that innovation is going to substitute me. But in terms of cost, how much is it going to reduce the cost for the supermarket? Very little, right. because that was like, I mean, the worker was already like very cheap. The machine itself is very cheap, but not as much, right? So like installing all of the equipment, programming, all of that. At the end of the day, the productivity gains is like, I don't know, 1%, mine, something even smaller than that. That's just like a small part of the cost. So at the end of the day, you unroll this technology. You deploy this technology, you substitute all of the checkout clerks, right? So that's right. a chunk of the population. And what are the productivity gains from doing that? Not that big. They're not that big. It's just like, I mean, you just saved a little bit on cost. So automation has this thing that as long as you save a little bit on cost, you're going to adopt it. So you can have adoption of a lot of automation technologies that mm -hmm. have very small efficiency gains. And I think that that principle kind of like has escaped uh, current discussions about automation. People mm -hmm. equate productivity or technology with automation. Automation is just one particular type of technology. It's only one particular component of productivity that mm -hmm. has a feature that it can generate big distributional impacts despite mm -hmm. having small productivity gains. So like I think that the interesting research question there is to try to understand why are we adopting automation technologies that you know like have such very low productivity gains and mm -hmm. there are candidates one candidate is perhaps taxation maybe we are doing this because we are taxing labor a lot so that's inducing mm -hmm. her to, you know kind of like adopt more automation even if that's not very profitable or you know from an engineering perspective right maybe it's a cultural thing so so i think that that those are kind of like the big important questions like what determines the direction of technology uh, are we going to keep focusing on automation, 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 or are we going to have a more balanced development of technologies that in the long run is going to end up being more beneficial for all of those people that, that already discussed, that have experienced net losses in their income in the last 30, 40 years. Professor Restrepo, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Julian. Wow, it is so hard.